I know that I'm working at the bottom of the cliff and uh, very smart people should be working more at the top of the cliff. I just, that's not my skill. That's not what I train for. I train for working at the bottom of the cliff, which is not the ultimate solution. What I have Well, you know, you're not actually with. working at the bottom of the cliff. What you're working is at the hospital where the ambulance has retrieved someone from the bottom of the cliff, taken them to the emergency department, and then I give them to you. So that's you're right. a few steps after the bottom even of the cliff. Even beyond the bottom of the cliff. I'm not even, yes, that's right. It's even worse. Worse. It's even worse. You're absolutely right. Kia ora koutou and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr. Nina Sue, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner, Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was brought to you by MedWorld and made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland. We've got Dr. Nick Sheckett, who is one of our internal medicine consultants at Auckland District Health Board. Well, actually, we don't really call Auckland District Health Board anymore, do we? Just Auckland City Hospital. <laughs> Te Fatu Ora. Te Fatu Ora. Yes, Te Tumai. Yes. And you also had run this podcast series yourself called I Am Reasoning. Could you tell me a little bit more about what you guys were doing with I Am Reasoning? Yeah. Oh, thanks. Thanks for inviting me to onto your podcast. It's a privilege. Yeah. So I Am Reasoning was born out of a combination of factors, situational at the time. I had, I remember very distinctly, I went into a conference. I went to a conference in Australia and I, Ironically, it was it's called Smack. I'm sure a lot of people have heard of it. It's social media and critical care. And I oh, thought, okay, and never I heard, heard of it. <laughs> yeah, and I heard it was a good conference, which it was actually a really good run conference. But I was intrigued by the relationship between social media and critical care. I could not. I didn't even understand what they were talking about. I remember walking into a lecture that intrigued me. It said why you should run your own podcast or something like that. And I walked in thinking, there is no way that I would ever dream of running a podcast. What could I possibly oh, talk yeah. about? When I first, when first Connor was like, hey, you should do a podcast. I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You never think of it. And I, the guy was so engaging. I literally walked out 45 minutes later thinking, I should totally run a podcast. <laughs> I don't know what happened in those 45 minutes. And this coincided with, so I came back to Auckland, across the hall from me was my partner in crime, Art Nahill, who was also an internist in my department. And he had just had this, this career epiphany about how we make mistakes all the time and what are the causes of those mistakes and how we don't teach this stuff to our trainees. Anyways, we worked through it and one thing led to another and eventually said, okay, we've done this curriculum on clinical reasoning that we came up with. Let's keep on going. Let's talk about other stuff. And five years later, we're still, we were still doing a podcast on diagnostic reasoning and clinical reasoning. So, so it's really interesting about the idea of making mistakes, right? Because I feel as doctors, we have this feeling that we have to be perfect all the time mm. and that we are right. And that also comes to that sort of doctor-patient relationship traditionally, which mm. is who has all the power, who has all the knowledge, mm. it's the doctor. And mm. I think patients often do feel pressured 
to have to just do whatever the doctor says or just accept the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Partly that's a cultural thing within the medical field where we're supposed to know what we're doing. We're supposed to inspire confidence in every interaction that we have with our trainees, with our patients. Otherwise, how do we do our job? How can people listen to us? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. All I will say is clearly we make mistakes. Everyone does. And some people may or may not know about it, but they're still making mistakes. And overall, I would say both with patients and with trainees and with colleagues, the more you own up to the amount of uncertainty that you have yourself, the more your trainees relate to you, the more your patients appreciate, understand, it's clear to them, and they really appreciate your honesty about that stuff. So it's about A lot of that is about communication of that uncertainty, but having a path forward to say, look, we don't know everything that's going on. These are the things that I'm unsure about. This is how we're going to move forward to try and sort this out a little bit better. And there's no promises at the end of the day that you're going to have it 100% sorted out, but you'll have a plan. You'll have a path forward. Yeah. So we can never be 100% certain about anything. I'm sure there's like multiple different diseases that we've discovered in the last like 10, 20 years. Mm. I always say to my trainees, because there is one exception to the certainty rule, and that's death. (laughs) Yes. Death is usually almost always certain. Even there, you have to be cold and dead for it to be truly certain. When I, a lot of what I talked about and what I teach the trainees is around when we talk about clinical reasoning, what we're talking about is the process of going from a patient who comes to you with a story or a complaint, a symptom, how do you move from that all the way to the best diagnosis that you can give them? That is the process of clinical reasoning. And so what? how do we do that? We use the bits of data and information that we have available to us. And those come from the circumstances, what the patient feels, the rest of the story that you're going to elicit, all the bits of history that you're going to elicit from the patient, then the physical exam, and then, of course, the investigations, which are more and more becoming the crux of how we make diagnosis. So in New Zealand, we've got the Health and Disability Commissioner. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where I think when we talk about the Health and Disability Commissioner, it probably sends like chills down the spines mm-hmm. of lots of healthcare workers, right? Mm-hmm. Because nobody wants a complaint against them. But I wonder if one of the things that we can all do to try and reduce the risk of getting a complaint is the whole thing about communication. Like I say, mm-hmm. managing expectations to be like, we're not 100% sure, mm-hmm. but this is the safety net yeah. that I will do to yeah. make sure that nothing bad happens. Yeah, that's a really good point is, and this has been shown, I think mostly in the states where lawsuits occur as a result of misdiagnosis or mistreatment or things that go wrong. And they have found just overwhelmingly that the people who get sued are the ones who miscommunicated, not the ones who made mistakes necessarily. Everyone makes mistakes, things go bad in every situation, but if you're a good communicator, you're less likely to get sued. Anytime a patient is under some misconception about what should have happened, it's because someone didn't communicate appropriately. Because either that thing shouldn't have happened and that wasn't explained, or something should have happened and they were right about that. But when I've been asked to be an expert giving an opinion on a case, there's always systemic circumstances, what I'm trying to say. It's almost never one particular reason. You You can never point to one bad decision. And you know what? Even if there was a case where the worst thing in the case that happened occurred because someone made a poor decision clinically, 
even in that situation, so what? Of course we're going to make mistakes. And those mistakes occur either because we we lacked knowledge, and that's a real thing. We don't know everything. I certainly don't know everything. I lack knowledge. As much as possible, recognize when I lack knowledge and seek help, read something, go to a resource, whatever it is, to find out what I'm lacking. But sometimes you don't know that you're lacking knowledge, and so you're just... The Dunning-Kruger effect. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Because I think when we have situations like that, where someone makes a mistake and they're hung out to dry as this sort of villain... What that does instead of, it's almost like a tough on crime like approach, right? Where it's, you can't have a mistake. There's no room for making mistakes. Is that instead of people like then owning up to their mistakes, like you say, if we don't own up to our mistakes, we can't learn. People will just cover it up, right? Cover it up and brush it under the rug Mm. because they don't want to be hung out to dry just like this other person Mm. and be made an example of. Sometimes it does come down to experience and knowledge and an individual's mistake. So just to give the example, that sometimes that should lead to a systems solution and sometimes not. Sometimes it's just feedback and that's an important lesson to learn. We've all made mistakes. It's just people probably have made different mistakes, have had different consequences. Mm. Mistakes happen all the time. All the time. And bad things don't happen all the time. I think for me... (laughs) One of my things is that I quite easily end up relying on my fast brain because mm-hmm. it's probably just how I work mm-hmm. is that I'm one of my strengths probably is pattern recognition, getting things mm-hmm. done. And I'm a much more of a pragmatic person and I'm right a lot of the time, mm-hmm. but sometimes I'm not. And then I do have to slow down a bit to use that slow brain, right? Because mm-hmm. the fast brain, it's it's efficient, but it's also just based on prior knowledge and prior experience, right? Mm-hmm. So if you've got this new thing going on that you've never seen before, you can't use your fast brain for that. You have to use your slow brain, right? But then your slow brain, it's like very resource intensive. Yeah, Yeah. it's less efficient. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. No, but you're quite right. The fast brain or system one, as they call system one thinking, is it's the system that we spend our life in and for good reason. It is fast and it is efficient and it is accurate. Almost always it's accurate because we, and obviously if you're thinking about it from the clinician's perspective, the fast brain is amazingly effective 20 years into your practice and less effective one year into your practice because you just do not have all the experience and patterns to draw from to use that pattern recognition. And so I would say you probably need to use your slow brain more <laughs> at the beginning of your career yep. and you can rely on it slightly less by mid-career, end of career. Art and I used to have what we called a cognitive checklist in the case of seeing patients, but you can do this in life in general. Every patient that we saw, we before we came up with our final impression, we just stopped. Even just stopping is sometimes all you need. Take a breath, Think about it for a second. Mindfulness. Yes, exactly. It is exactly that. It's just taking a pause for a moment and saying, what conclusion am I jumping to? But the three questions that you could ask, what else could this be? And that is basically asking, what is your differential diagnosis? Mm -hmm. I'm not asking for 25 items like I used to do when I was training. I'm asking for two or three other things that it could be. Even when you think it's like the most obvious slam dunk diagnosis, just stop and ask that question. What else could it be? And force yourself to come up with two or three other things. The second question is, what is the worst thing that it could be? Often 
those two, the answers to those two questions are similar because that's what you don't want to miss, right? Maybe I should think about this a little bit more carefully. And the third question is, what doesn't fit? Mm. What doesn't fit? Because sometimes you're well down the line, you've jumped to some conclusion, you're really trying to convince yourself that it's this one diagnosis, but then there's this pesky fever in the background and you haven't really thought about infection. And how does the fever fit in? It doesn't fit with whatever it is that you've come up with. And so just those three questions will go a long way to avoiding the system one mistakes. Checklists in healthcare is a relatively newish concept, mm -hmm. right? I think the WHO introduced like the surgical safety checklist yeah. in 2008, 2009, which is pretty recent if you think about yeah. it. And when you look at the airline industry, so the airline industry, they're flying flights all day, every day. I don't know how many, thousands, millions? I don't know, maybe not millions. <laughs> but there's so many flights. More than we can think of. Yeah, a bigger number than I can count to. Yep. And how many times do you hear of like plane crashes? Very few. Mm. They happen, obviously, mm. but not that often. And so their like ability to have like flights was like 99.999% success. And for us in healthcare, I'm like, oh, like 95, if I'm right 95% of the time, that's pretty good, right? Mm -hmm. But then that's 5%, that's still one in 20 that I could be getting wrong, which with with massive consequences. And you look at the airline industry safety, I think they, oh, I think the story was that they started checklists in the 1930s, I mm, think. Mm. There was some like bomber aircraft or something, this new one that they were trying to like sell to the US Air Force. And they were like up to like their very last like check before the Air Force decided who they were going to buy from. And I think because it was like this new plane, I think it was a Boeing, some sort of Boeing bomber, this new plane, it had all these like new controls, new panels, and then it took off, but then it crashed. I think pilots died on mm -hmm. that plane. And I think what they realized was like, oh, like there's all these like new panels, new levers to like push. And that actually that extra level of like cognitive load was actually too much. Mm. And then from then on, they're like, oh, okay, we'll put in this like checklist. Mm. And then I think they did 2 million flights after, the, after that with this type of plane, no issues. Yeah, no, I think some of that work was early work in the medical stuff was done by Pronovost maybe, some intensivist out of Johns Hopkins. He, he did checklists for procedures in the ICU, I think that was where a lot of that work. And then the surgical, I don't know much about the surgical checklist, but that seemed to be necessary, I think, when the wrong leg got amputated yeah. or something on various occasions. Yeah, look, if you just take the idea, the notion that a, an airplane is a very complex machine, and it's got all these levers and you have to remember which ones to check and move before you actually take off. The human is also a very complex machine. It is. There's a lot of stuff going on with the human. And there's a lot of complexity in the work that we do, even if you just forget about the body for a second. But all the things that we have to do, both cognitively and practically, to process patients in the hospital, make sure that they're safe, very complex. So there's no shame in it, on the contrary. And this is why the cognitive checklist that we use is a good one to remember. But you can make checklists for everything. Why occupy your brain with the same list of questions every single time? Just look at your list. Is there anything on this list that I didn't even think about, that maybe is a good idea, that maybe I should consider. And then often what happens when I do that is I go back to the room 
and I ask a couple more questions. It actually is important to be able to do that. But you don't, I think part of it is, oh, you don't want to look like you don't know what you're doing and have to like go back and ask. But actually it's a good thing, right, to go back because you're showing that actually you have some time to think about it and you're going back and being really thorough. Oh, and I'm sure yeah. patients probably patients, actually love that. I've never known a patient to be <laughs> irritated by me coming and getting more information. Oh, have, thought about but... a couple of other things. <laughs> okay, maybe you have... No, but probably ones that didn't really want to be there. But <laughs> sure. But how bad how bad could it be if you walk back into the room and you say, you know what, I was thinking about this a little bit more carefully, and there's a couple more questions yeah. that I wanted to know. Take the third or fourth year medical student who's just learning how to speak to a patient and take their history. They have a list of 2,000 questions. They ask 2,000 questions. Now they've got this massive information in front of them, and the challenge is to no much relevant into something, to, yeah, yeah. formulate into something else. Whereas take the consultant who's been doing it for 20 years, they will ask 10 questions because the only questions they're asking are the ones that are going to help them discriminate between the diagnoses that they already have in their mind that this could be. Now, we don't want to do that to a fault because sometimes we haven't taken that pause and said, what else could this be? And we're just doing confirmation bias. Bias is really interesting, isn't it? Because mm. basically you're going on a fishing expedition for something to prove your own point, which is not just like a healthcare thing, right? It's a all... Every, all, life, all life is yes. about people doing things with confirmation bias. Absolutely. Shout out to the flat earthers, <laughs> for example. Yes, you know? they will pick and choose their information <laughs> very or, carefully. Or, I'm getting a bit active on like LinkedIn, which is quite an interesting place to see what people's like ideas are about. And obviously things that are really controversial or about, I don't know if it's controversial, but it's controversial because people are talking about it, which is a COVID response, right? People are like, oh, look at this graph. And obviously it somehow proves like their point, but in, in their point that like like it doesn't really mean anything showing how per population we've got just as many people with COVID infections in New Zealand as like the UK without factoring that we've got a higher vaccination rate people have already been infected but post-vaccination so if they're reinfected like they're less likely to be sick and we've both been working in Auckland City Hospital and I don't know between the two of us I don't think we've seen that many people super sick with COVID-19 in the second half of this last year. Oh no yeah Yeah. I was gonna say because I've been doing largely COVID. I'm on the COVID ward, so largely COVID for the last two and a half years. (laughs) So I've definitely seen my share of sick COVID, but that was all Delta. Once Omicron hit, it's really only frail elderly, for the most part, not only, but for the most part, frail elderly patients who COVID for them is also like a cold, Yeah, but it's like a cold was for them two years ago, three years ago as well. Yeah. It just really, so they take a hit. Though, yes, we've got a much larger amount of infections right now yeah. compared to what we used to have before. Yes. Yeah. But actual, it's a lot milder. Yeah, the yeah. clinical hit that we've had is not as bad as oh, what it could have been. So it's just absolutely. interesting. It's so hard to explain to people about their confirmation biases mm. and mm. you try and present them with alternative Often ideas. the yeah the claims that they're making <laughs> when they're having the debate are resources that you've never heard of that you couldn't possibly answer to in that moment because you haven't seen the study of 18 people that showed But even whatever. then, they're using like numbers like from world and numbers or whatever, but they're just still interpreting it differently from what we need. It's, they're it's not difficult. taking into account... <laughs> the totality of the data. They're just picking and choosing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Without the clinical reasoning of what matters clinically from the information. 
There's a case that I want to talk about as well. Probably have heard about it. Elaine Bromley. She was from the UK, 37-year-old woman. She'd gone for this routine procedure, this ENT procedure. Do you remember this? It vaguely rings a bell, so but no, I don't know the basically details. Basically, she went in for this routine procedure. I can't remember what it was, but it was under Eno's throat surgeon. And shortly after, she'd gone under anaesthetic and then they couldn't intubate her, couldn't put a breathing tube down to ventilate her while she was anaesthetized. And you had several senior anaesthetists there, senior endothroat surgeons there, and they just couldn't intubate. They were just standing there, couldn't intubate, lost control of like time when you're in that situation, in a, re in a resuscitation situation, you can easily lose track of time. So basically what happened was because they couldn't intubate her, she'd been down without oxygen for too long that she ended up passing away. So when they went back to re-simulate the situation and try and find out like what actually happened, mm -hmm. so there were several senior nurses in that theatre as well who anticipated, oh, they can't intubate this woman. We could probably just put an emergency tracheostomy, mm -hmm. right? So that's like a, an emergency airway that goes directly into the throat to bypass the mouth. And so the senior nurse had brought the kit for all of this mm -hmm. to the surgeons, to mm -hmm. the anaesthetists and thought that she'd said, oh, yeah, I've brought this kit. And some, and one of the surgeons or anaesthetists was like, oh yeah, sure, whatever. And either didn't actually see it or wasn't thinking about it at the time. And so this nurse just took it away again. And I think the nurses had an idea of what should be done, but didn't feel like they could be assertive enough to stick up for the patient sure. to say, yeah this is what we need. And mm. so this lady like lost her life. Mm. And so I'm involved in some like simulation training myself. Mm. For the listeners, simulation training is when we have a fake patient mannequin, we simulate an emergency situation. So we mm. practice doing them in a safe space so we can learn from our mistakes. Mm. All I will say is that in, the, in an emergency situation, relying on slow thinking is tough because everything needs to happen quicker. Everything needs to just flow and you are largely working off intuition. And so simulation training is paramount because you have to have seen it before. If you're told while someone is dying in front of you, work as quick as you can and think carefully about what needs to be done, it just doesn't jive. You just need to act. And so that's why simulation is so important. And it's amazing that a group of senior ENTs and anesthetists didn't have the pattern of going from one procedure to the next procedure to the next procedure in order when they couldn't get the airway is a bit surprising. Yeah. Don't know exactly what had happened afterwards, but I know that in our emergency departments, we do have this airway checklist now mm -hmm. where for rapid sequence induction for an emergency mm -hmm. intubation, ventilation, we're like, go through all the things, make sure we've got all the things, somebody's watching the time, we've got like a backup plan, all that kind of stuff. Hopefully that's what triggered us to do all these things, like a checklist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the other thing is having that open lines of communication, mm -hmm. because I think the issue is culture, right? Mm -hmm. So the culture of having everybody in the hierarchy feeling able to speak up about yeah. the issues. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Very important. Recently, I got into a bit of like a drama situation where a colleague of mine who's new to where I'm working at the moment was asking about night shifts. Oh, how much rest could we get on this night shift and where do we rest? And I just said, oh, maybe an hour here, maybe an hour there on a night shift, depending. And we do have a registrar room, but there's just two couches that are like quite 
short. So I think you'd struggle. <laughs> mm-hmm. But if you're lucky and the hospital's not too busy and the nurses are happy, you could probably just have a lie down on one of our spare beds on the ward. Reasonable, you think? Mm-hmm. Yes? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's probably been a little while since you've gone uh, on yes. night shifts, but yeah. lucky you. <laughs> but it's probably pretty standard to have a little lie down yep. from time to time when you can. And then unfortunately, this chat happened on the wrong group chat that had not just <laughs> junior doctors on it, had some other people on it. And I had a response 7pm on a Sunday evening saying that this is not acceptable behaviour and this won't be tolerated, blah, to, blah, blah. To, to Dean to ha- try and have a rest on a night shift? And to not use a bed on the ward, a oh, spare I bed see, on the I ward. It's yes. just not acceptable. Right. And I was just like, oh my God. Because the thing is, we have nowhere because where I'm working in Starship, mm-hmm. we're several hundred metres down the road from the building that actually houses the beds mm. for junior doctors. Mm. And we know that cognitive load on a night shift is just too much, especially if you have no breaks. Mm. And also if I'm having a little snooze or whatever, 400, 500 metres up the road, it's going to be extra minutes between Mm. me getting to an emergency than if I was just on the ward there Mm. ready to go. Yeah. 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 And it's crazy to have a culture where there's no sort of like room to move from, Mm. I don't know, specific person. Yeah, look, my experience in training, which is really the last time that I was doing any serious working at night, we were still doing 24 hours of call. Yeah. So you started at 8 a.m., you finished it admitting at 8am the next day, and then you had to be home by noon of the following day. So it was a minimum of 28 hours on your feet. But we had on-call rooms, individual on-call rooms with beds. And we were fully expected to go sleep if we could, if there was nothing else going on. Yeah. And I initially, I thought, I felt, because I wasn't accustomed to it, I thought, this is the worst. To have to be woken up once you've fallen asleep at two in the morning or three in the morning was so much worse than trying to just stay up the whole time. And I quickly learned that actually wasn't true. Yes, when you get woken up at three in the morning, it feels like the worst thing on earth for about five minutes, but you feel better overall than you you had an hour before. Yeah. So Because not sleeping at nighttime when we're supposed to sleep, like it it gives you cancer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. So I'm like, oh, I don't want to do this forever. <laughs> yeah. It would be so interesting if we had some simulation, like cognitive testing done on somebody at the beginning of a night shift and have them not sleep, go to work and then do one at the end of their night shift just it's, to see. It's been done and it's <laughs> clearly worse. I, look, I remember I used to always hit the wall around 3, 3.30 in the morning, that my lowest cortisol level was around that time. And I specifically remember, and this was, it was absolutely embarrassing and just mortifying, but I specifically remember falling asleep, standing up while listening to a patient's heart, <laughs> leaning over their stretcher in the emergency department. Oh my God. Falling asleep because I would open my eyes and not really have it. The worst one was falling asleep in a chair while interviewing the family member of one of my patients. Like all of a sudden I opened my eyes. I had no idea how long my eyes had been closed for. And this, I suspect it wasn't long, thankfully, because this family member was just staring at me as I fallen asleep (laughs) while speaking to them. There is no way that I was performing 
as I should have been yeah. if that's how tired I am. Yeah. Right? So I'm thankfully, I haven't worked in Toronto for many years, but I know that they've gotten rid of the 24 hour system now, thankfully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and places we're bringing it back here in New Zealand. Yeah, there is, uh, I guess it depends on the service. If you're on for 24 hours, but you can be expected yeah. to sleep most of the night, yeah. then maybe it's acceptable, but barely. <laughs> but it, on a service like internal medicine, for example, or pediatrics, you're going to be up. Yeah. Th there is the huge advantage of continuity of care with patients, which we underestimate quite a bit. And you do lose that when you go and you move to a shift system, but there is no perfect system. And I think it's just- I don't know how we're going to get back to continuity of care because most people don't have a GP anymore. Yeah. A lot of people are part of, go to some GP family care practice mm. that where there's multiple GPs that share patient load because it's too hard to be like a full-time five day a week kind of GP. It's just too yeah. hard the paperwork generator so most mm. people don't have that continuity of care anymore mm. yeah i'm not sure what the solution is there i can tell you that even within the hospital so once you've been admitted certainly to my service you don't get the continuity of care that we wish we could do with patients someone admits them they're not the person that looks after them the next day i don't think that's going to change very much and so we just have to improve the ways in which we communicate with our colleagues and provide the best possible handover that we can to our colleagues. But you're always going to lose something. Yeah, systems-wise, like how do you think we can improve that? Because where we work, everything's like still paper, right? So you yeah. just lose a piece of paper mm. and you're like... Okay. That's what I was going to say. We have nothing to talk about here until our hospital moves to an electronic <laughs> health record. It is embarrassing, I have to say. Everywhere else... You go even just across the bridge at North Shore, the, all the registrars and house officers that have the opportunity to work there, they come to Auckland and they say, it is actually a good system. We should just move it over. My understanding is that Auckland has now procured the same system Yay! as North Shore. Yes. And it's just going to take them a bit of time to implement it like two years, which is a bit disappointing, <laughs> but I've waited 12. I think I can wait another two years. If you like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. So I want to ask you about your previous experience because you did your training back in Canada. Mm. And that's, to my understanding, the healthcare system in Canada, it's all basically public healthcare system, right? Only public. Only public. Mm -hmm. How is that working out? Because in New Zealand, we think we've got a strong public healthcare system, but we actually don't. It's much more of a two-tier system than we realize. Yeah. Look, I'm no health system expert, so I'm not speaking from a position of authority here. But from what I've experienced, New Zealand does have a strong public healthcare system. It's got some room for improvement, certainly in the primary care, not in the care that's provided, but in the you know, the incentives and the way that it's organized. For example, I learned some years ago that when the public healthcare system came into being in New Zealand, the the pr primary care wasn't part of that, that deal. I don't know why or who made that decision or what the reasons were for that decision, but it's amazing to me that you can get a cardiologist 
opinion within a day of walking into the hospital and it's free, but you can't get a GP visit. And now you have to wait two weeks. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And the waiting part, the, sure, there's room for improvement there, but the fact that you have to pay for primary care, which is the the way in and so important for preventative care, the fact that you have to pay for that and you don't have to pay for super subspecialists in the private system. There to was, it was a period of time in New Zealand history where where you did have to pay. Like it was a user pay system to come to hospital, but oh, I, yes. I don't think it lasted for very long. No, and I think it's <laughs> I think it's absolutely the right move to get a public system going. I wish the primary care had opted into that yeah. system because that to me seems a bit backwards. Comparing with the Canadian system, I'll just, in the Canadian system, it's the Canada Health Act, but the provinces have jurisdiction over their health ministries. And so each province makes more or less its own rules, but they have to operate within the Canada Health Act, which basically says that there is no such thing as private care. It is illegal to really? charge. It is illegal to charge patients for care provided above and beyond the schedule of benefits that is set by the, the billing system of that province. And so the way that when I was working there for the few years that I was there, the way that it works is, and I was doing hospital medicine, but regardless of what kind of medicine you're doing, patients, you provide services to those patients that whether that be a consultation or a follow-up or a procedure or an operation or whatever. And there are codes associated with each of those activities. And those codes are recorded and you then submit those codes on a disc Used to be a disc. We don't like use a CD disc. disc. <laughs> Used to be a floppy disc. Don't show actually. Your age. <laughs> Used to be a floppy disc. That oh was even God. before my time. You but mean I heard that's it. a save icon? Yeah. So now I'm sure it's USB drives or directly over the internet. But you submit those codes with the patient details, etc. Everything that you've done, however often, once a month, I think it is, and then the single payer, which is the provincial government drops you a check in the in your bank account for the services that you have provided. And there is no other, officially, there is no other way to have income from the practice of medicine. Interesting. Right. Now, there are some loopholes that have been created, for example, because if I, let's just say that I'm a gastroenterologist, there's nothing stopping me from hanging a shingle on my door whether it be in an office or at home or wherever and saying, I practice gastroenterology, I have a license, come and see me, right? Still, whoever I see, whatever I do, I'm, do, I'm just submitting those codes to the government and, they, and I get paid. The patient never has to pay me. But sometimes those gastroenterology clinics say, you know what, when you come and join our practice, we provide a holistic service. You get to see our dietitian. You get to get this test. We will be on call for you 24-7. Any documents that you need filled out, we will fill out for you. And for the privilege of being a member of our practice. Oh, it's like a club. Oh. It's like a club. And so now you pay $500 a year and you're a member of the club and all of these extra things are provided to you. Meanwhile, I have hired the dietitian and I have hired my administrator to run all these extra little things. And so there are loopholes, the ways of charging extra income for services that are not part of the schedule of benefits of health services, right. but are special services that patients might pay for. It's like a private business in a sense. So there are some loopholes, but if I do an angiogram, because I'm a cardiologist, there is one fee, 
It's the same fee every single time. And it doesn't matter if I've been doing it for 25 years or one year, an angiogram is an angiogram. And that's what I get paid. And how is that system working out like for doctors? Like are doctors into it back in Canada? I haven't been there in a while. So <laughs> it's hard to, I don't have my finger on the pulse of the emotions there. But I would say my generation of doctors grew up within that system. Within that system, we were perfectly happy. Yeah. Doctors are not, they, they, n- there's nothing to complain about. We're making good salaries. We're billing fine. We're living good lives. It's not, it's, there's no income problem there. Um I think when the rules first came into effect, the doctors who had practiced in the old system certainly had a lot to complain about because there was, there's no question that they were going to start making less money than they used to. But I think for my generation, it was never an issue. Do you think we could ever have the Canada Health Act in New Zealand? Something like the New Zealand Health Act, the Aotearoa Health Act? Yeah, I think we're far away from those rules here in New Zealand. I think everyone, certainly the doctors who do private work and certainly all the patients who take advantage of that private work are absolutely convinced that this is the way to run a health system. And I think something that I can't reconcile, again, I'm no health systems expert, so I don't know the nuances here, but everyone talks about the waiting times for various things in the public system. Thank God for the private system that relieves our waiting list (laughs) in the public system. I think this is bullshit. I'm sorry, but I think that this is just a blind spot. The doctors who work in private, by and large, also work in public. If they didn't spend so much time in private, maybe your lists would not be as long. Now, I'm not saying it's their fault. There is no funding for this. The the government takes advantage of the fact that there's a private system that is utilized regularly by insurance owners and out-of-pocket payers. And they don't provide the appropriate funding, I imagine. Yeah, I I think one of the problems is that they just do not hire enough surgeons, specialists or whatever in the public system that they that the government does rely on the private system. But it seems to me like it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation. So we would endure quite a bit of pain if we were to say, okay, no more private. And it would take a few years to sort out the difference. And of course, there's no way that you can run a completely public system without the private side unless you increase taxes for everybody, right? So look, there's all sorts of changes that I'm sure would need to happen. Taxes in Canada are higher than taxes here. And that's just the way that it is. Yeah. What's about like income inequality in Canada with free healthcare? Yeah. I don't know the, I don't know the numbers, but I can, but that is what my wife and I are both trained in Canada. And that's what we've been passionate about is it doesn't matter in Canada, it doesn't matter who you are, what you have, what you can pay for, not pay for. No one jumps no one the queue. No one is a VIP. <laughs> no one is a VIP. No one jumps the queue, right? Yeah. The VIP syndrome in healthcare can be a bad thing. <laughs> you get investigated too much and you get misdiagnosed too much. So I wouldn't recommend it. But yeah, I think that's something that we believe strongly in. And so neither of us yet have migrated toward the private system as consultants. In my case, it would be useless. There's no, I can't make a lot of money as a general (laughs) internist in private. So it's not that alluring, I have to admit. Michelle as a surgeon would be, it would be much more worth it for her, but she just feels passionate about everyone being treated the same. So how equitable are outcomes in Canada for say indigenous and non-indigenous people? From experience, I know that we have a lot to work on here in New Zealand, but um, in comparison, we have done really well with Maori and Pacific Islanders here in this country compared to what I see in Canada. The quintessential First Nations 
individual in Canada is living on a reserve, has terrible health outcomes, highest rates of diabetes. I know we have all those issues. You can relate to the, the same tropes here in New Zealand, but there is far more integration of Modi here in New Zealand than there is of First Nations in Canada. If you know if it's an entirely public system, what is it in Canada that's still failing the Indigenous people if everyone's yeah. supposed to get this? I guess I wouldn't say that the public system is specifically failing First Nations. I would say that society has failed First Nations on a much larger scale. And so we, we see a lot of destitution in the First Nations population there, but it's not specifically because the public system still doesn't do the trick. It also probably doesn't do the trick on some level, same as we experience here, but it's a much, much bigger issue there. Because I think that's a really like good point you have there, because I think what I'm realizing with this podcast and the conversations that we've been having is that healthcare is getting more expensive our investigations, our treatments are getting more expensive as we get new information and are able to treat more things. But what we're actually doing is we're making the environment like worse and like harder for people to be healthy mm. in this current climate. So we can put more money into more doctors and more nurses and more hospital beds, et cetera, et cetera, and from a, like a healthcare point of view. But actually health is so much more yeah. than the hospitals and the GP clinics. Yeah. I was going to say just as guilty. I'm not guilty of anything in particular except that I work at the bottom of the cliff. Yeah. That that's my job and I try to do that job as well as I can do it, but I'm I know that I'm working at the bottom of the cliff and uh, very smart people should be working more at the top of the cliff. I just that's not my skill, that's not what I train for. I train for working at the bottom of the cliff, which is not the ultimate solution what I have Well, you know, you're not actually with. working at the bottom of the cliff. What you're working is at the hospital where the ambulance has retrieved someone from the bottom of the cliff, taken them to the emergency department and then I give them to you. So you right. a few steps after the bottom even of the cliff. Even beyond the bottom of the I'm not even, yes, that's right. It's even worse. It's even worse. You're absolutely right. But yeah, so that that is what I train for. And that's what I try to do my best at. But that's not where the huge gains really are. Now that you've stopped I Am Reasoning podcast, what's next for you? So I was mentioning to you before that I'm on to bigger and better things with point of care ultrasound. So I'm really interested in that and bringing some of that training to my department. But in relation to the diagnostic reasoning that we were doing before, Art and I still have a couple of projects on the go. One of them is we have a course that we're going to be offering. It's not live yet, but we're going to be offering it online and it's going to be paid for a change. <laughs> That's the idea. But yeah, it'll be a basic curriculum on diagnostic reasoning. And then, you know, it, with a membership, you would have access to ongoing diagnostic reasoning sessions where we run through cases. And then the other project that we have going is an app that we've created. And it's not live yet. We're still in the testing phase at the moment. But the ultimate goal of the app is that it it works in the background of an electronic health record. It extracts the admission working diagnosis for a clinician, for any given patient that they see. It also extracts the final diagnosis that the patient received upon discharge. And then it presents that information as feedback to the original clinician. So it'll give you an alert. It'll say, Mr. Jones, you saw him four days ago. He was discharged with pneumonia. When you admitted him, you said that he had heart failure. 
And here's that for you to reflect upon. And, and I wonder it, if another thing you could add to that would be people who you've discharged home. And let's say it, the app tracks if they came back to hospital within the next, I don't know, two weeks, because yes. that would probably be a relevant time period. Because when I'm working in the emergency department, I'll discharge people back home thinking that they're safe or whatever with return advice. But I don't check every single person that I've discharged from hospital, you know, what yes. they're like. And I might check them the next day. Nothing might have happened for a week or something. And then they've come back sick. So I don't get that feedback unless I'm going through and actually yeah, checking. Yeah, look, and this is to address that lack of continuity that we were talking yeah. about before. And the fact that we are very busy and we actually just don't have time to- We need something to automate it. Yeah, it's an engineering solution. And look, you can do with it what you want. You don't have to reflect at all, but it gives you that opportunity because I think most clinicians really want to do a good job and they want to be good clinicians. And if I have an alert that says, you thought it was heart failure, it was actually pneumonia, or you could say, let me check that out because I don't believe the clinicians who discharged them that said it was pneumonia, but it gives you an opportunity to reflect and to say, okay, it was pneumonia. Next time that a patient presents with this and the other, I should also think pneumonia because that's that's obviously what the diagnosis was. Well, best of luck at getting the app through with the ethics and all that about patient health records. <laughs> <laughs> that is a challenge. To be honest, I think we're already given up on the notion of testing it in a real EHR in this country. So we're probably going to start doing the testing in the States where we have oh. some contacts and then we'll, yeah, we'll see how it goes. If it we'll works, space, yeah. yeah, someone might pick it up. One last question. Okay. So where in the world is your favorite restaurant ever? I would have to say my favorite, it's, it was my favorite restaurant event Ooh. or experience. And it was in Florence, Ooh. Italy, in a restaurant called Il Cibreo, spelled with a C. And I forget the name of it, but it was not the official restaurant. It was the back room. <laughs> the back room right beside the kitchen. And what they, what this restaurant was brilliant. What it did is it opened up a sort of cheap version of its menu in the back room. So it was like, it wasn't a fancy experience by any means, but you got to see the kitchen. It's actually trendy now, isn't it? To be able yes. to see the food, but it yeah. wasn't before. So was it before it was trendy? Well, this was, it was our honeymoon. So that would have been the year 2000. So, so before it was 23 cool. years ago. <laughs> So yeah, I always have to, that's the most memorable restaurant experience. What did you I've have? Had. Oh God, probably pasta. I honestly can't remember. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> Lovely. Good Thank job. you so much for coming on the podcast, oh, Nick. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and to titter to your Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap. Mm -hmm.